I want it all. This really has become an anthem for our age. Is, would you agree with me? I want it all, and I want it now. Uh, we picked that song for this morning because uh, we're close to the end of this message series in which I've been talking with you about getting what you want. Many of us in our lives have sacrificed everything. We've sacrificed everything. Family, marriages, children, a relationship with God in order to grasp at the things that we want. And in the last several weeks, we've been talking about sex. We've talked about romance and money. Last week, we talked about what happens when we're trying to achieve success at the sacrifice of everything. And today, I want to talk with you about the pursuit of power, the pursuit of power in our lives. Or maybe a better word would even be control. How many of you would say you have ever known somebody that you would describe as a control freak? Raise your hand. You know somebody who's a control... How many of you would be honest enough to say, I am a control freak? All right. Not as many. <laughs> many of us love to be in control. And I, and I hope this morning that you will really stay with me as we talk about what happens when we become control freaks. And you might not even be aware of how subtle this can be in which maintaining control is something that we pursue above all else. Uh, How many of you remember when you were in fourth or fifth grade about that age, what you wanted to be when you grow up? Amy, what did you want to be when you grew up? Wow. Amy said, you probably couldn't hear, hear her. In fourth grade, really? She said she wanted to marry a Montana man and live on a ranch with a canary? And teach. And teach school. All right, somebody else wanted to be, when you grew up, yeah. Yes, please, Sue. I wanted to be an executive You wanted to be an executive secretary with your own office and desk. One more person. Uh, yeah. Wanted to be a mom with 10 kids, and you have four. All right. (laughs) When I was was in fourth grade, uh, I can remember walking home from school, and I was really, really interested and intrigued with mail men, the postal carriers, you know? And one of the things that I was really, really impressed with is whenever I would walk by, it seems like the mailman was always eating something, you know? And that really impressed me. Uh, (laughs) So uh, we had an assignment in fourth grade. Our teacher assigned us to write a little essay about what we wanted to be when we grew up, and we had to make a little construction paper model of whatever that occupation was. And I said, my mother still has it, uh, I said I wanted to be a mailman when I grew up, and the reason in my essay was because then I can have lunch whenever I want to. I think my mother saved that because it's a kind of a window into what motivates me. (laughs) Lunch always motivates me. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was thinking about things that were a little more significant than what time I could eat lunch. And, uh, and, and I was making plans for my career as a senior in high school. And I talk to a lot of kids that are about this age and trying to pick a college and all that kind of stuff. It's a tough time of life, isn't it? When you're trying to chart a path and when you're 17, 18 years old, sometimes 16-year-olds are trying to make these kinds of decisions. It's really hard to know what to do with your life. 
And like uh, most people, I was really struggling with the choices that I needed to make uh, in terms of college and, and a career. And I was really torn between two things. I've shared with you before, I loved music. And music, at, at that point in my life, it was everything to me. And I really thought that probably the most, most enjoyable thing that I could do was to make a career out of music. And I, I was considering going to a Christian Bible college and pursuing uh, doing music in a church of some sort and, and making a career of that. And the other thing, complete opposite on, on the spectrum, was I was also interested in medicine. And like my wife at that period of time, I was interested in, in pursuing medicine as a career and, and, and a doctor specifically. And I can remember having a very significant conversation with my mother around this time when I was just struggling with what direction to go. And she was trying to give me some guidance. And I looked at my mom in the eyes. I remember this like it was yesterday. And I said, Mom, I believe that I can be anything that I want to be. I believe that I can be anything I want to be. And I remember my mother looking at me like I had just landed in a spaceship from Mars. <laughs> and I don't remember that she said anything to me or disagreed with me. I just remember that quizzical look on her face like, really? You really believe that? But I really, really did. And this is something that I think most of us grow up with. If you've been raised in America or even in Canada and you've been a part of our educational system, this is something really that is drilled into us from our earliest times. You can be anything you want to be. If you want to be president of the United States, all you've got to do is set your mind on it and work hard enough and you can achieve anything you set your mind to. How many of you have been taught that? All right. <laughs> it really comes down to the issue of control and power in our lives. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you're taking notes on your smartphone, and many of you are, uh, we've put this up on uversion.com as a poll. And if you're not, if you're just taking notes on your note cards, you might want to just jot the answer down to this question. This is a question I want to ask all of us this morning. What do you think is the biggest or the most important factor in achieving your life's goals? What's the biggest factor for you in achieving your life's goals? Now, here's a bunch of choices that I came up with. Uh, you might think that your parents are a really big factor. Or you may think that when and where you are born is the biggest factor. Or maybe your education your environment that you grew up in. Maybe you think that your talents and skills are a really big factor. Or maybe your personal choices. Or some of us might think that just circumstances, the randomness of life is probably the biggest factor in helping us to achieve our goals. Or many of us would probably say God is the biggest factor. I think most of us would probably agree that all of these things play a part but what I would like you to do this morning is just choose one. What is the most important factor in your mind for achieving your life's goals? Which one would you choose? Go ahead and jot that down, or if you're taking notes on your smartphone, you can uh, enter that in there to participate in our survey. I want to talk about this issue of achieving life's goals 
uh, becoming control freaks, achieving power. All of this stuff kind of goes together this morning. And I want to start, if you've got your Bibles this morning, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament? It's just a little further right than the middle of your Bible if you've uh, never read the book of Daniel before. Very, very interesting book. And, uh, and I want to talk about an insecure king this morning. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I think your notes say Daniel chapter 1. Does that, am I right? I made a mistake when I was typing that up this week. We're actually in Daniel chapter 2. So if you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, we're going to start reading this story of Nebuchadnezzar. Fascinating story about a man who achieved probably the biggest power in this world that anyone could ever aspire to, and yet he was desperately insecure. If you're there, follow along with me in your Bibles, starting right at verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, there's a couple of things here that are very interesting. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar was very early in his career as king of Babylon, only the second year, and yet he was already having these dreams that were troubling him and making him feel very fearful. And so uh, insecurity was something that was gripping him at this point. The other thing that I want you to notice in this story is he wasn't completely confident that if he brought somebody in to interpret his dream, that they would tell him the truth. And so instead of telling them the dream and then asking for an interpretation, he asked for these people to come in and tell him what he had dreamed and then what it meant. Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't trust anybody who was around him. He was an insecure leader, and he was filled with fear. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, this is what I want you to know about fear and its relationship to power. Power is often born in fear, and in turn, it gives birth to more fear. This was certainly true in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He started as a fearful leader. He was ruthless. He grabbed power. He manipulated everyone around him. But instead of gaining control and and achieving power and then that fear going away, it just gave birth to more fear and more fear and more fear. And I think most of us can probably relate to how this feels. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I just feel afraid as a leader. I feel afraid as the leader of my family sometimes. Sometimes I feel afraid as the leader of this church. Fear is just something that most of us deal with from time to time, especially if we're in a position of responsibility. What is it that we're afraid of? Well, I think Nebuchadnezzar, at at the base level of his life, was afraid of powerlessness, failure. I saw you mouthing the word failure. I would call it powerlessness. He was afraid of those things that he could not control. And I think most of us are afraid of the same things. And so uh, to overcome that fear, what do we do? We try to control everything. In the 
in the final year, my senior year of Bible college, the end of that story that I started earlier was I ended up going to Bible college and studying music. My senior year, I had to do an internship in a church and get some hands-on experience of what it was to run a music program in a church. And so I received an invitation from a little church in North Seattle, and I went to work in this little church, and it didn't take me very long to find out that the pastor of this church was an insecure leader. He was a man who had spent his whole life in pastoral ministry, and now as he was approaching retirement, he found himself in a tiny, tiny little church that it had no growth over the, over the years. It was basically a church that was aging. He was burying more people than he was birthing people in this church. And it was a church really in decline. He was a pastor that was desperately insecure, and he was afraid of anybody that threatened his position in this church. I went to work for him, and, and uh, one of the first people I met in this church was his youth pastor, a brilliant a charismatic young man that the people adored. And one night, uh, we had a Sunday evening service, and this youth pastor was the one that was delivering the message, and he gave a brilliant message that, that moved people in their hearts. People were weeping and crying, and as the, as the service came to a close, that youth pastor invited people to come to the front and begin praying, and there was this rush to the front, and people were incredibly moved and crying out to God. And the senior pastor, I, I watched him, he was furious that this young man had influenced the congregation to this point of emotion and this point of spiritual renewal. And this pastor stormed out of the main area of the church and he walked out into the foyer and began to unload on one of the deacons. And what he didn't realize was that his wireless mic was still on and everybody in the sanctuary heard what he was saying. And it was all this nasty stuff about the youth pastor. And why do people like him? Why do people respond to him? It was horrible. A few months later, after I'd finished my internship, uh, I was looking for a job after I graduated from college. And uh, this pastor came to me and offered me a full-time position in his church and wanted me to come work for him. And uh, it didn't take me very long to know this was not a leader that I wanted to work for. Uh, an insecure, manipulative, power-hungry leader is so unpleasant to work for. And so I declined his invitation, and when I met with him to say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to choose another direction for my career, he looked me in the, in, in the eye and he said, Russ, I want you to know I'm very powerful in the assemblies of God, and I can make or I can break your career, and you need to reconsider your, your decision." And I, I just very politely declined. <laughs> and I moved to Idaho instead of staying in his church. It kind of, this kind of a leader kind of reminds me, really, of the, the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Do you remember that story? About this emperor who had been swindled. He was one of these, these people that was very insecure. And the, the swindlers had come in and told him they could make him some clothing that could only be seen by people who were very smart, very intelligent, and very capable in their jobs. And he was horrified to find out he couldn't see the cloth. But instead of saying, I can't see the cloth, he played the game and pretended that he was intelligent and didn't realize that he was being swindled. I found uh, a new version of this story on YouTube this week, and I want you to take, 
take a look at this. That is not the actual ending to the fairy tale, right? This is new. This was created as a political, political video, illustrating the fact that in today's day and age, politics has become ruthless. And when people in power are playing this charade and they realize that there is no substance to what they're saying, they just completely silence their opposition. It really is a good visual example of how people are abusing power in our day and age. Many people are abusing power at the top levels of government and religion, but we also personally have the temptation to abuse power even in our own relationships, in our jobs, at school, and in our families. This is the kind of leader that Nebuchadnezzar was. He was insecure, he was fearful, and he was a control freak. Let's continue on with the story. If you've still got your Bibles opened up, I want to jump down in the story to verse 31 in Daniel chapter 2. And at this point in the story, uh, all of the magicians in Nebuchadnezzar's court could not give him the dream or what it meant, but a young man from Israel by the name of Daniel came, and he was able to finally give the dream and its interpretation. And this is what Daniel said, verse 31. You looked, O king... And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, I don't have time to go into all the ins and outs of the story, but uh, the gist of the dream was that this statue, at least the gold part of the statue, represented Babylon under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. And the disturbing part of the dream was that there was this giant rock that came and smashed the statue at its most vulnerable point, those, those feet that were partly made of clay, smashed the statue, and then the rock grew and filled the whole earth. 
Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the interpretation of the dream was that God was the rock. And really, uh, what we know now is that Jesus is that rock. The fulfillment of that dream was Jesus that came and smashed the kingdoms of the earth. And the kingdom of God, through Jesus, is expanding to fill the whole earth. And this dream terrified Nebuchadnezzar. But what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar was that this dream was a call to humility. The dream was a call to humility. In fact, really what the king was being asked to do was to change his understanding of who God was. You see, Nebuchadnezzar lived in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, in a culture that had many, many gods. He could pick and choose who he wanted to worship, pick and choose who he wanted to serve. And, and the expectation of religion in that day was that religion was really just a way to manipulate the people, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar would do. It was a way to achieve power. But he was confronted with the one true God, the God of Israel, who had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. And Nebuchadnezzar was being called upon to release his control issues and bow the knee in humility towards God. We're called today to do the same thing. I believe that God orchestrates events in our lives to bring us to a point of humility. But we've got the same thing going on in our hearts that Nebuchadnezzar had going on. We love to be in control. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a young man by the name of W.E. Henley who lost his leg in a tragic accident. And uh, after that happened, he set his mind to overcoming this obstacle of having an amputated leg. And he wrote a poem that has become really a part of the fabric of American life. It goes like this. You probably know it. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Do you remember hearing that somewhere along the line in school or something like that? Um, This is something that has really shaped us as Americans. This idea that I can control everything in my life. But this is the point that I want you to get. If you don't remember anything else this morning, I want you to remember this. The concept that I am in control is an illusion. The concept that I am in control is an illusion. And like Nebuchadnezzar, struggling to grasp at power, trying to be in control of everything, it it started with a misunderstanding of who God is. And the same is true of us. We think we're in control. We think we're the master of our fates. But if we do, it's because we don't really understand who God is. Let me unpack this for you uh, just briefly. There's a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith who did a comprehensive study of people's belief in God in America just recently. And his summary statement with this is this. It's up on the screen for you this morning. He says this, the dominant view of God in America is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I want to unpack this for you. 
Uh, he chose the word moralistic because the moralistic idea of God is that God blesses people who live good lives. God blesses people who live good lives. Or in other words, I am basically earning my own favor with God. If I'm good, God will owe me a good life. If I really do well in my life, maybe 75% good, 25% bad, whatever. If the scales tip in my favor, I will earn my way into heaven. This is what most people in America believe about God. Moralistic view. That's not a biblical view, by the way. The therapeutic word means this. Most people in America today believe that the main goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about themselves. That too is not a biblical view of life. The Bible talks a lot about laying down our lives for other people, sacrificing our own happiness, sacrificing our own self-interest in the service of God and other people. But most Americans believe that happiness is the chief end of life. And then the word deism means this. People who believe in deism believe that God created everything that is, but then he just kind of stepped out of the universe and he really doesn't get involved unless something really bad happens. And then once in a while, he'll step in and just take care of business. But for the most part, God is not involved. And people who believe all of this stuff, Christian Smith said, believe in moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I believe this is the the picture of God that leads us to believe that I am the captain of my soul. But when we have a proper understanding of God, it shatters this idea that I am in control and we realize things are a little bit different. Let me talk to you just briefly about the truth that shatters this illusion. Uh, I believe that we are the product of three things, and this is going to be up on the screen as well. We're the product of three things. Genetics, we're the product of environment, and we're the product of personal choices. All of those choices that I gave you earlier uh, in, in my talk this morning could be wrapped up in these three things. We're the product of genetics, environment, and personal choices. And here's the truth, friends. We only have control of one of those things. We can only control our own choices, and God is in charge of all of the rest of it. One of the studies that I I read this week said that in reality, we can only control about 5% of what happens to us. If you really think about it, this is really true. God decides who your parents are. God decides how your genes are ordered and and determines how you're wired in terms of temperament and talents and gifts. God decides what part of the planet you are going to be born on. God controls a lot of the issues that, that happen to you, whether or not you live in a prosperous area or an impoverished area. And the truth is God is way more in control than most of us ever acknowledge him to be. This week I was thinking back about uh, one of the worst arguments I ever had with my dad. My mom and my dad are both people who love to be in control. Anybody have parents like that? Anybody parents like that? Uh, Very few hands. (laughs) A few. My mom and dad love to be in control. When I had finished my sophomore year in Bible college, uh, I had an opportunity to begin traveling with a national touring music group. 
And uh, I was on course to, to finish my bachelor's degree in four years, and, and everything seemed planned out for me. And all of a sudden, this opportunity came along for me to join a music group and go traipsing all over the United States and Canada. The best part of it was it was a paid position. It was like a dream come true for me as a musician. And I didn't even hesitate. When I got the call offering me this job, traveling with this music group, I dropped everything. I dropped out of college, and I just said, yes, I'm going, no, no questions asked. And uh, as it happened, my mom and my dad were with me the day that I got the phone call, and they were horrified. Uh, they, went, they came back to Montana. I was out on the West Coast. They came back to Montana, and they were absolutely panicked with what I was doing with my life. And... Uh, and one night I called to, to talk with my mom and dad about it, and I had the worst argument with my dad I ever had. It was horrible. He was yelling in the phone. I was yelling back. I could hear my mom crying on the other end. It was terrible. Have you ever had that kind of an argument with your dad? Um, and a few days later, I got, a, I got a letter in the mail, and it was from my mom. And I pulled it out this week, and I just want to read you just a portion of it. It was three pages. I won't read the whole thing. But listen to what my mom said. She said, one point specifically that I want you to understand is why it's important in dad's eyes for you to finish college and get a degree. This was something that your dad has been robbed of and down deep he has resented never having the opportunity to go to college. He has worked hard and taken every opportunity to get financial education in his line of work. He was a banker. But he still never had the distinguished honor of having a degree, which seems to be a big deal in a lot of people's minds. In reality, it would not have gotten him any further in the world than he is, but he probably would have been more confident in himself and felt better about himself if he had gone to college. At any rate, here we are 25 years down the road, and our son has the opportunity to go to school. Scholarships abound, and you have a fine mind to achieve almost any degree you could go after, but you are giving that up for another choice of a lifestyle totally foreign to us. For some strange reason, parents always desire for their kids to obtain what they missed in life. College was something your dad missed out on, and he's always been determined you kids would not be deprived of that. Then she goes on. I'm skipping down in the letter. She says, Dad and I have talked for an hour or so since I started to type this letter. We have come to the conclusion that neither of us are putting much trust in the Lord where you are concerned. We dedicated you to the Lord when you were just a little boy, and we have leaned heavily on the knowledge that God has his hand upon your life. And the longer we talked about you joining this musical group, the more we realized that this is another step in God's leading for you. God's ways are never man's ways, and the hardest thing for us to do with our children is to trust God to take them out of our control. As you well know, both mom and dad like to be in control, and it's a step in the right direction when we learn to let God take over. This was a turning point in my relationship with my mom and dad, and things were never the same. And they trusted me to the Lord. I made the choices that I did. God was in control, and God blessed me. God blessed him, and uh, it's been good. But my parents had to learn to relinquish control. Don't we all have to learn that? We really do. Let's finish this story in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar 
finally came to his senses when he realized that he was up a force that was so much bigger than him. In verse 46 and 47 we read, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledged that God is in control. Now, the sad part of the story is Nebuchadnezzar didn't stay there. And if you know anything about the book of Daniel, you, you know that he kind of flip-flopped and God kept trying to get his attention. And, and, and humility and pride just kind of came back and forth with Nebuchadnezzar. And it can be that way with us, too, from time to time. But one of the things that I love about being a Christian is that we have a great model to follow. And his name is Jesus. And he's the humble king. Nebuchadnezzar became the humbled king. Jesus is the humble king. Look at this verse from Philippians chapter 2 in the message version. Jesus had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Author Tim Keller says that by giving up his power and serving, Jesus became the most influential man who ever lived. And here's something that isn't in your notes, but you might want to write down. There is a huge difference between influence and control. There's a huge difference between influence and control. And the temptation for us when we become fearful or when we, become, when we feel powerless or we feel like circumstances are just spinning around us and we have no control, there's a temptation to try to control everything, to grasp it and control it and shape it and mold it into whatever we want it to be. But the model that Jesus gives to us is that when we lay down our lives, trust God, and serve the people around us, instead of power, we gain influence. And people who serve find themselves naturally in positions of leadership because everybody wants to follow a servant. It's just a principle of life. Servanthood leads to influence. But power and grasping at control generally leads to self-destruction. So what do we do with this this morning? Let me give you, let me give you three next steps. And, and I hope that this morning, if, if anything I've said has struck, uh, struck a nerve in your heart, that you will choose to make some changes in your life in this area of, of being a control freak. Here's, here's step number one. I want to encourage you this morning to choose humility instead of power. Choose humility instead of power. Instead of 
aspiring to positions and authority and control instead of trying to make good impressions by being fake and and wearing invisible clothes. Instead of lording it over people and boasting about who you are, choose instead to just be humble. 1 Corinthians 4.7 says, What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it weren't a gift? Choose humility instead of power. And then number two, choose influence instead of control. Lead through serving. Lay down your life for your family members, for your friends, for your spouse, for your boss, for your coworkers, for your underlings. Learn to serve and you will find that you gain influence. And then finally this morning, I want to invite you to join me and so many others in this church family in following Jesus. Jesus is our supreme example of what it means to let go of control, to let go of power and serve and influence. Jesus changed the world. And I believe, friends, that if we will follow him, if we will imitate his lifestyle, we can change the world as well. And uh, it's an incredible life when we follow Jesus and we lay down our lives for other people. All right. Let's stand together. Would you put your things aside? The band is coming. We're going to sing a great song this morning that just acknowledges the power and the majesty of God. And then we're going to pray together. Would you, would you sing this with everything that is within you? And if you need to... If you need to repent of being a, being a control freak and refusing to let God order your steps, would you just begin to do business with him while we sing this great song this morning? Splendor of the King, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, let all the earth rejoice, and He wraps Himself in Darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice and trembles at his voice and how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great